Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Trigger warning. This podcast involves discussions of child sexual abuse and pedophilia. Listener discretion is advised. In 1948, Sally Horner was a fifth grader in Camden, New Jersey, who tried to shoplift a notebook from a corner store on a dare. She took the notebook, got to the door, and then felt a hand on her arm. This was the hand of a grown man who said he was an FBI officer and that she could get in big trouble and be sent to a reform school for doing something like that. He said he'd let her off this time, but he'd always be watching. Sally's mother was a widow. Her father had died by suicide when Sally was only six, something they never discussed in the household. The family was poor, but Sally was a bright and kind young girl, and she didn't see the man who said he was an FBI agent for months after that. But then he turned up again in June 1948. He reminded her of what she'd done, the crime of stealing a notebook, and then said that the government insisted that she go to Atlantic City with him. She was 11 and confused, and this is long before stranger danger ever becomes a popular conversation in schools, so she agrees. She promises not to tell her mother the real nature of why she's leaving. The man said that he would call Sally's mom, Ella, saying that he was the father of a classmate of hers, and all Sally had to do was not correct him. Ella would later say that she was concerned about the offer, but was happy that Sally might get a chance to have a vacation, something that her mother wasn't able to provide. So on June 14, 1948, Ella brought Sally to the bus station to go to Atlantic City, sitting next to a man who Ella never met personally. She would not see her daughter for 21 months. Because the man Sally went with was not an FBI agent. He was a man named Frank LaSalle, a 50-year-old mechanic who had just been released from prison six months before and had a marked history of molesting girls between the ages of 11 and 14. Sally wrote to her mother and called from Atlantic City for the week she was scheduled to be there, then asked her mother if she could stay longer. After three weeks, Sally stopped contacting her mother until the end of July, at which point Sally said she was going to Baltimore with the man who called himself Mr. Warner. She told Ella she wouldn't be contacting her anymore. Frank LaSalle brought Sally Horner to Baltimore from there, raping her regularly and ensuring her silence by saying that she would be found out for shoplifting 
if she didn't do what he wanted. Ella reported Sally missing back in New Jersey, and the story made waves locally, but lost steam after several months with no developments. I didn't know about Sally's story until pretty recently. It was written about in detail in the 2018 book, The Real Lolita, A Lost Girl, A Salacious Crime, and a Scandalous Masterpiece by writer Sarah Weinman, who's written about Lolita quite a bit over the years and who I'll be interviewing in this episode. I don't believe that Dolores and Sally are one and the same by any stretch, but given that Sally Horner's lived experiences took place around the exact same time that the fictional Dolores Hayes was abducted by Humbert Humbert, I think her story is very relevant here. In Baltimore, LaSalle entered Sally into a Catholic school under a different name, and they stayed there for six months as he continued to intimidate and assault her. By early 1949, Camden police had figured out who LaSalle was, charged him with kidnapping, and LaSalle took Sally and fled to Dallas, Texas. At this point, Sally still believed LaSalle was an FBI agent and was terrified of him. They moved to a trailer park, and Sally was enrolled in a different Catholic school befriending the kids and eventually the mother of a family living in a nearby trailer. The mother's name is Ruth. Sally doesn't reveal anything about her relationship to the man she was instructed to call her father, but Ruth was suspicious. So when Ruth's family moved to San Jose, California, Ruth wrote to LaSalle and told him that he could get some work there in the hopes that she could keep an eye on Sally. Sally confessed how LaSalle had sex with her regularly to a classmate, and her classmate said, that they should stop. This, of course, was rape, but Sally didn't have the tools to understand that at this time. Sally went on to tell an investigator later that she, quote, began to reject his advances after that, unquote. In early 1950, Sally is still missing, and LaSalle brings her to San Jose, California, where they reconnect with Ruth's family. Sally comes clean, telling Ruth about LaSalle's criminal behavior. According to Weinman's book, Ruth, too, was a complicated figure, a hero in Sally's life, but was emotionally abusive to her own children. Ruth has Sally call her older sister back in New Jersey, Sally is taken to a children's center, and LaSalle, in spite of the fact that he continued to insist he was Sally's biological father for years, was arrested. But Sally couldn't go home to her mother until she'd been questioned by the police. She wasn't comfortable discussing how LaSalle sexually abused her at first, but eventually said that it had happened countless times. Finally, a few weeks before her 13th birthday, Sally is returned home, 21 months later. LaSalle was convicted under the Mann Act, or the White Slave Traffic Act, sworn into law in 1910. By the 1940s, it's more popularly called the Mann Act, likely because referring to it by Mann, after politician James Robert Mann, who introduced the act on the Senate floor, avoids facing the implications of its alternate name and the law's often racist application of it. So a quick but important digression here. We've referenced this law in early episodes since Humbert Humbert invokes the name of the Mann Act as well. So a brief note on its history here. While the law itself detailed that it was, quote, for the purpose of prostitution or debauchery or for any other immoral purpose, unquote, while it was used to prosecute kidnappers, it was equally used to punish sex workers and to criminalize interracial relationships of any kind, with the act being deployed to punish black men in particular. While this law worked in favor of Sally Horner receiving justice, it certainly did not mean that for everyone. 
Early in the law's history in 1912, a man named Jack Johnson, who was the first black American to hold the heavyweight title, was said to have violated the man attack for kidnapping, heavy quotes here, a white woman whom he had married named Lucille Cameron. Given the fact that this was a very consensual relationship, Cameron refused to cooperate, and Johnson was brought to court under the Mann Act again in 1913 for involvement with a white sex worker. And this time, he was convicted under an all-white jury, later serving a year in prison. He wasn't pardoned until over 70 years after his death in 2018. Now, there's a lot more to say with that example alone, but all of this to say, some have been taken to court over the Mann Act over legitimate abuse of women and children, but it was a law conceived during the nonsense white slavery panic of the early 20th century and has been used for prejudiced and revenge-based instances extensively as well. The Mann Act is still in law today, was part of the reason that Elizabeth Smart's captor was put in jail and was last amended under George W. Bush. For more on the troubling history of this law, I will link a piece to the notes of this episode. There's definitely more to learn. Okay, let's get back to Sally Horner's story. Frank LaSalle pleads guilty and turns down any legal defense, although he would later appeal. But we're talking about Sally here. She and her family were offered the chance to leave Camden, New Jersey and live under assumed names somewhere else, but Ella refuses. Sally just wanted to return to her life. But doing this isn't so easy because once Sally is discovered, the details of her case are made national and the fact that she was sexually abused is on the front page of newspapers. So Sally, going back to the same school she went to prior to being abducted, struggles. The family barely speaks of the incident. She receives limited to no mental health care and experiences bullying from her peers. But Sally pulls through. She makes a close friend and in August 1952, at age 15, she goes to the Jersey Shore with her friend for the weekend. And it's here that she meets an older boy, 20 years old, and Sally lies about her age, saying that she's 17. It's all pretty innocent, and he offers her a ride home at night. And on the way home, they get into a car crash that kills Sally Horner at age 15. LaSalle goes on to live in prison for over 10 years afterward. Once a media sensation, the Associated Press had little to say about Sally upon her death. Florence Sally Horner, a 15-year-old Camden, New Jersey girl who spent 21 months as a captive of a middle-aged morals offender a few years ago, was killed in a highway accident when the car in which she was riding plowed into the rear of a parked truck. Starting the same year, Sally Horner was abducted by Frank LaSalle, 1948. Vladimir Nabokov begins work on what would become his most famous novel, Lolita. He writes a first draft of the novel out on large note cards, along with notes, reference points, and ideas for future drafts. In the corner of one card, this is found. August 20th, 1952, Woodbine, New Jersey. Sally Horner, 15-year-old Camden, New Jersey girl who spent 21 months as the captive of a middle-aged morals offender a few years ago, was killed in a highway mishap early Monday. Sally vanished from her Camden home in 1948 and wasn't heard from again until 1950 when she told a harrowing story of spending 21 months as the cross-country slave of Frank LaSalle, 52. LaSalle, a mechanic, was arrested in San Jose, California. He pleaded guilty to two charges of kidnapping and was sentenced to 30 to 35 years in prison. He was branded as a moral leper by the sentencing judge. And in the published draft of Lolita, Chapter 33, Part 2, 
Humbert Humbert says this. Had I done to Dolly, perhaps, what Frank LaSalle, a 50-year-old mechanic, had done to 11-year-old Sally Horner in 1948? Sally Horner and Dolores Hayes are not the same person, and we know Nabokov never intended this because he had been trying to write a story with a plot like Lolita for over 10 years before Sally was ever abducted. But we know that she was on his mind, and that she dies 16 months before the manuscript is ever finished. This is Lolita Podcast. Welcome back to Lolita Podcast. I am your host, Jamie Loftus. And in this episode, we are going to take a closer look not only at some of the real-life cases of abduction and abuse that Nabokov pulled from to write Lolita, but how the world viewed these crimes at the time, where psychoanalysis was at the time of Lolita's publication, and where professionals are today in terms of treating survivors of the kind of abuse suffered by Sally Horner and by Dolores Hayes in the pages of Lolita. Quick note here, I know there's an ongoing discussion on the myriad words used to describe those who have experienced abuse. I'm aware of this dialogue. I'm going to use the word survivor in this series because that's what I've used in my own personal experience. But it is an ongoing dialogue that we should be paying attention to. We're also going to be speaking to those who have experienced abuse while underage and their complicated relationships with this text and, of course, with these issues. This was a heavy, challenging episode to put together, and I really, really, really appreciate the time and care to those I interviewed in answering my questions. Dolores Hayes, while a fictional character, has an experience reflective of a lot of real-life people, and they deserve the space in this discourse. They always have, and I think Nabokov would agree on that, but we see it so rarely discussed and never discussed in our popular culture. So this week, I'd like to listen more than talk, because there's a lot to unpack here. While I'm a survivor of sexual abuse myself, I'm very lucky to not have been subjected to this abuse as a child. And we're going to spend this episode talking to readers of Lolita who have experienced and survived abuse and the professionals who have dedicated their careers to working with survivors in a responsible way. Within these conversations are some cases for reclaiming Lolita as a text that is useful for those who have been sexually abused, and those looking for insight into what abuse at the hands of someone who is supposed to be caring for you can be like, as well as a case for the opposite. But first, let's talk a little more about Sally Horner. She wasn't the sole inspiration for Dolores Hayes. We know that Nabokov was interested in exploring this topic in fiction as early as 1935, before Sally was even born. There are strong indicators that the tragedies that befell Sally, down to her tragic death at the age of 15, three years to the day before Lolita was published, had an influence on certain points in the book. And here's why that matters. This is a bit of my conversation with the author of The Real Lolita, The Kidnapping of Sally Horner, and the novel that scandalized the world, Sarah Weinman. So I remember looking at this note card in Nabokov's files, and it had a list of music from 1950 that um, Dolores would be listening to. And it was very funny. It was like Peggy Lee. And I think 
maybe Perry Como was on there and Tony Bennett was definitely on there. And it's so funny because that's 70 years ago. So we think that that's such oldies music, but at the time it was fresh and contemporary. And it's this idea of the making of the American teenager. There are also some similarities in terms of some of the details that I think at one point Humbert references a case that's very similar to the actual happenings of, of Sally's kidnapping, but transposes some of the ages and talks about a nine-year-old girl who was abducted and obviously just mentioning the fact, like Frank's name and that he was a mechanic. It's yeah. right there. The news media of this time, at the time of uh, Sally Horner's disappearance, I would love to dig into that a little bit more. How does that get to how we cover comparable cases now? But at, at this time, at the time of her disappearance, how was it covered in the media? Later on, after her rescue, when the coverage would be much more extensive, there were these whispers that, well, why did Ella let Sally go off and then didn't notice anything for several weeks? Right. And the thing that I try to impress in my retelling of the story is that Ella was poor. She had a lot of baggage of her own and secrets that she was keeping. She could barely keep the lights on. She had trouble holding on to a job. And for Sally, the idea that a week's vacation in Atlantic City, that was more than Ella could ever offer. Mm. So I can see or I can try to understand and empathize why she made what is clearly a poor decision. And so... Because she had been speaking with the sheriff and he had asked her if she had had sex with Frank LaSalle, we, they wouldn't have used the term rape, um, whether even though it is accurate. I think it's just important to clarify that when you're dealing with history, going by the phrasing that they use and then contextualizing it is super important. And he, the sheriff had asked. And at first she denied it, but then she admitted it after some careful, gentle coaxing. Mm -hmm. And this statement was reprinted on the front page of the Courier Post above the fold. And it was essentially Sally's testimony. So on the one hand, it was really jarring. But on the other hand, it was the only time that with a couple of exceptions where I had Sally's voice, even though it was in this sort of artificial mode. So right. the fact that she said in the statement, I want to come home as soon as I can, like that was just so, it just like got me right in the heart. Yeah. And I knew that if it got me, it would also get readers as well. So I think that ultimately the coverage was as good as it was going to get. But I think that with our very careful and practiced eye, there are a lot of grounds for criticism and for how it could have been better. I mean, in 1950, you didn't have a lot of television. You had some radio, you had a lot more newspapers. So as a result, you didn't have this wall-to-wall -wall 24 hour cable madness. And now with social media, it just feels like all we do is consume media. But yeah. 70 years ago, the whole point was you picked up a paper, you listened to the radio, you talked, you talked to the people in town. So if anything, the coverage of Sally's rescue was a lot better than how the people of Camden viewed Sally. And that's why she had such a tough time sort of reorienting herself. So they stayed mm -hmm. in the same house. Sally went back to the same school with the same people, all of whom had read the coverage and knew exactly what happened to her and arrived at the conclusion that instead of 
being a victim of sexual assault and abuse, that she had willingly given up her virginity to a much older man. And were there any mental health services or counseling made available to her? Even if there had been, I don't think that it would ever have occurred to Ella to pursue that for Sally. It just wasn't done. And I remember talking with Al Panero, her brother-in-law when he was still alive, and Diana Chimingo, who was Sally's niece, who was born only a couple of months after Sally's abduction. So she was just about two when Sally came back. And I asked her, I was like, was there any, was therapy a thing that your family did? And she shook her head and said, no, just, you never talked about it. She didn't even find out the whole truth of what happened to Sally until well into her teens. So it just wasn't discussed. Their world was smaller, not necessarily limited, but just smaller than the worlds that we have at our disposal. Post-traumatic stress disorder wasn't even a term in 1950. And so what is your hope? What, what do you hope that people take away for knowing Sally Horner's story? I think it just, it comes back to knowing Sally Horner's story not only gives context for this iconic and to my mind, yes, one of the great American novels of the 20th century, but it also gives context for how we understand how trauma works and what value all of our lives have and that we shouldn't necessarily brush people aside just because they don't fit particular modes of victimhood that we think that I think the last few years in particular have really shown that I hope that we have expanded our ability to understand that processing trauma is a complicated endeavor. It's asymmetrical. It doesn't happen in a linear form. It doesn't happen on a schedule that you want. It's very, to my mind, very correlated with grief and the sort of like stop start feeling that that happens. And it's just mostly I just want people to feel like Sally's was an interesting person and by interesting person just that her very existence was interesting and that was really important to me that Sally Horner her life mattered as her life but also as a maybe not a, a stand-in per se but just that it was you know I just I wanted her to be immortal I guess that's kind of what any writer is doing when they're reviving interest in someone who is overlooked and neglected. I think one thing that was really important to me for Sally's part of the book was I kept running into all sorts of complicated women between Ella and Ruth Janish, the woman who engineered her rescue. As one of her children told me, she she did the best that she knew how with what she had. And I think that's really important in understanding why, unfortunately, people abuse their own children. It's because it's a model that they have learned perhaps from their own family. And it can be really, really difficult to undo what you've known as a child. And it's like encoded into your body and your brain. And you have to work so hard to get past that. And many people are able to do it. And many people are not. And I think we just have to give people the emotional and psychological tools to break cycles. And it's really important that the more of these stories that are out there, the more 
we can expand our understanding. It might be a difficult thing to say right now when the country is so polarized, but I'm enough of an optimist to think that there are ways to expand and bridge our ability to understand one another. Thank you so much to Sarah Weinman for her time, and you can check out The Real Lolita wherever books are sold. I also highly recommend her writing about Sue Lyon that was published earlier this year. We discussed that last week, and we'll continue to in a future episode. Hey, Doug Gottlieb here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making the now perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck, like a rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design, the Tundra combines the raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. With the available iForce Max hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower further than ever before. Or check out the fully redesigned Tacoma, delivering trail-dominating power and captivating style the new Tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true. With new available tech, this legendary truck is getting even better. When you buy a Toyota truck, you buy Toyota dependability, meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out the amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. So as deeply painful as it can be, I think that discussing comparable real-life cases to Lolita is critical to understanding the text itself. And so is understanding how the conversations around this topic have changed over the years. As a starting point, abduction cases, as they were covered in Sally Horner and Dolores Hayes' time, centers abused girls and women who are white almost exclusively, an instance of cultural and media-driven racism that's still with us now. Look at a list of Dateline episodes. Look at iconic true crime stories that we give space to. Look at the cult stories that we elect to cover in depth. It doesn't make the abuse any less scarring, but there are wide swaths of stories concerning the sexual abuse of non-white people with an emphasis on black, brown, and indigenous people that are discussed less or not at all in a larger cultural way. I highly recommend a piece from The Appeal called The Enduring Pernicious Whiteness of True Crime by Elon Green as a start. 
Another thing to keep in mind is that the study of childhood sexual trauma is still relatively young even now, having come into the public consciousness in the early 1900s with the work of Dr. Sigmund Freud. Before we talk about more modern approaches to addressing not just Lolita the text, but how we discuss the abuse and sexualization of children and young women, I wanted to clearly contextualize the popular psychology that Sally Horner and Dolores Hayes would have been growing up around. Popular psychology that Nabokov attempts to demonstrate was pretty easy for Humbert Humbert to twist to his advantage. So it brings me no pleasure to inform you that we're going to talk briefly here about Sigmund Freud. And to be clear, for all the Freud heads in the chat, this is kind of my introduction to him as well. The controversies surrounding his research and publication combined with the impossible to overestimate influence it's had on our culture is enough to fill thousands and thousands of pages, hours of broadcast, just way more time than we have here. But it's necessary to address, because to remind you, Nabokov had a marked dislike and outward antagonism of the work of both Freud and sexologist Alfred Kinsey. And to be honest, I wasn't completely sure what his reasons were going to be going into the research process for this show, and maybe you're well acquainted with the controversies already, but it's definitely not a common discussion for normies like myself, so we're going to get into it. Because after learning more about Freud's life and work, I am far more in the Nabokov camp at this point. Freud's conclusions are, for my money, mostly a broad oversimplification of a series of complicated problems that warrant close and specific examination without bias. And for Nabokov, it would appear that his frustration with Freud was also connected to Freud's methods of researching child sexuality, which I only became familiar with recently. This section was originally much longer and touched on Freud's myriad issues on queerness, the absence of race or religion or class from his work, his complicated but close relationship with his unapologetically gay daughter, his propensity for cocaine, but it just, it got unwieldy. My producers were like, you have, you have to stop. But if you're interested in these topics, I will leave some places to get started in the show notes. Uh, this is obviously a very dense area of study and a lot of it was new to me. So for brevity, we're going to stay focused on Freud as it pertains to child sexual development and his views on sex and women. In particular, Nabokov seems to take issue with Freud's child sexual development rhetoric, which has an interesting history as Freud continued to flip-flop on his views on survivors of child sexual abuse as his career went on. So in culture today, Freud's work regarding child psychosexual development is everywhere. And there's a lot of his popular theories that have kind of embedded themselves into our world as fact. The formative personality concept of the id, the ego, and the superego, uh, life and death instincts, mechanisms of defense. So one of Freud's greatest hits is the psychosexual stages of development. This might sound familiar. Freud separated five stages of development here by age and quote-unquote erogenous zone, or the body part that people of this age tend to fixate on. These consist of the oral stage, from birth to a year. The erogenous zone here is the mouth. The anal stage, ages one to three. The erogenous zone is the bowels and the bladder. Phallic stage, ages three to six. The erogenous zone are the genitals. 
Latent stage, ages 6 to puberty, no erogenous zone, libido is inactive. And the genital stage, puberty into adulthood. There's also Freud's theories surrounding sexuality and childhood, which brought us familiar hits like penis envy and castration anxiety which is a fancy way of saying Oedipus complex, which is a fancy way of saying, quote, the fear of loss or of damage to the genital organ as punishment for incestuous wishes toward the mother and murderous fantasies toward the rival father, unquote. Normal stuff. Freud grounds a lot of these theories in mythology, which is interesting because mythology is famously completely made up. It reminds me of when my uncle told me his favorite comedian was Deadpool. It's like, first of all, that's not possible. Deadpool is not a real man. And second of all, that's hurtful because I am a comedian. Although if you asked Freud why I was frustrated by my uncle saying this, he'd probably just say I subconsciously wanted to steal his penis. Sorry, there's also the concept of the Freudian slip, where, for example, you would say a perfect ass instead of a perfect assessment when you're talking to your crush in sociology in college, pulling that example out of thin air. And then there is seduction theory. And in all seriousness, my uncle's favorite comedian Deadpool aside, Freud's seduction theory needs a lot of unpacking as well. But to understand how this theory develops, you've got to know a little more about Freud's career and his use of his own experience and views to shape the ideas of early psychoanalysis. So Freud is the father of psychoanalysis, most will tell you. Again, I'm sure there's a million counterpoints to this, but we're 101-ing it here. He was born in 1856 to a poor Jewish family in Austria and went on to become at first a neurologist and then in his 30s began to experiment with what would become psychoanalysis. And it's around this time in the 1890s that Freud releases details of the case that will serve as the foundation for his legacy. This regards a case with a subject called Anna O., who he claimed to have cured of, quote, hysteria, unquote, a fun Victorian diagnosis for women feeling emotions and then expressing it. He first hypnotizes her and then encourages her to talk about her symptoms, then eventually stops hypnotizing her and just has her talk to him in confidence and analyzes the content of her dreams. Hysteria cured. But as messy as a lot of these practices is, this is the basis for talk therapy as we know it today. There is a generalization that Freud begins to develop around this time. And that's assuming that all adult hysteria is automatically connected to childhood sexual trauma. This is an assumption that is potentially harmful to project onto a patient that hasn't experienced this and serves to further harm and muddy and take away from the recovery of patients who are seeking treatment because they have experienced it. But the Anna O case kicks off Sigmund Freud's career, and Freud starts to tell on himself in regards to his lack of insight into women in his own work pretty early on. Later in his career, he says this. The great question that has never been answered, and which I have not yet been able to answer, despite my 30 years of research into the feminine soul, is what does a woman want? I mean, anyways, after the success of the Anna O case, Freud continued to treat others and also turned his tactics in on himself. 
he began self-analyzing, and around this time, he also started to form his ideas around childhood sexual trauma, which changed throughout his career. Which brings us to seduction theory. Seduction theory, put briefly, is what Freud thought the origin of hysteria was, which he believed was repressed memories or unconscious memories of child sexual abuse. This was first presented in public on April 21st, 1896, when Freud presented a paper to his colleagues at the Society for Psychiatry and Neurology in Vienna, and it's called The Etiology of Hysteria. The paper is built on Freud's experience with 18 subjects of all genders, all of whom he'd concluded had trauma due to the fact that they'd been victims of sexual assault by parents or trusted adults in their lives. That is to say, he had traced a number of psychological issues back to childhood trauma. This paper doesn't blow up necessarily, and in fact, there's some evidence that his colleagues at the time did not approve of how he had arrived at these conclusions, but Freud continues on a similar course of study moving forward. Another majorly controversial issue at hand here is how did Freud safely and ethically conduct this research on child sexual development, and how was it verified? Freud's explanations on how he arrived at these conclusions about children is asking you to take his word for it. He never, that I was able to find, presents specific evidence regarding this study, only what he had taken away from having interacted with these patients. His reason for doing this, according to J.M. Masson's 1984 paper, The Assault on Truth, Freud's Suppression of the Seduction Theory, was because he thought his community couldn't handle the severity of the clinical case stories about sexual abuse that he described. Per Freud, he didn't want to describe these in detail before the seduction theory had been more widely accepted. Which what? I understand that attitude as it pertains to the general public, but it does strike me and struck many in Freud's community as extremely dodgy to not provide proof to some extremely heavy theories on the basis that he assumed they couldn't handle it. He promised at least two other times to present precise evidence, but never actually did so. Since so much of his studies involved his own interpretation of dreams, a lot of present-day psychologists dispute whether this research actually existed in documentation, since Freud never produced it, and it was very dependent on his opinion. In the case of a patient he did report his experiences with, a patient he called Little Hans later in 1909, Freud attempted to relate a five-year-old boy's fear of horses with his fear of his father, with next to no evidence, which Freud admitted, saying this, Hans, Hans, whatever, had to be told many things that he could not say himself. He had to be presented with thoughts, which he had, so far, shown no signs of possessing. So when Freud does provide evidence, it strongly suggests that a lot of the conclusions are more of a him thing. Here's what changes in his seduction theory down the line. Just a year after seduction theory is first presented, in 1897, Freud backpedals on the theory significantly, and he admits a few holes in the theory as well that in order for it to work in the way he described, it nearly always would have needed to be the father as perpetrator across the board, which Freud said triggered a realization of the unexpected frequency of hysteria. Whereas surely such widespread perversions against children 
are not very probable. Furthermore, he says in 1897 that the unconscious mind that he claims to have extracted these memories from were not always able to distinguish fact from fiction, which would discredit the majority of Freud's work up until this point. This abandonment of seduction theory led to Freud's new and improved damaging theory called infantile sexuality, the penis envy and the castration anxiety that while causing quite a bit of discussion in their day, ultimately made it easier for adults drinking the Freud Kool-Aid to ignore when children reported very real sexual abuse to them. It made it all the easier to dismiss a real child's concern as some kind of repressed Freudian desire rather than a crime that they were brave to come to another person about. In the end, of all the tools that authorities and adults already had to ignore the serious concerns of a child, Freud only gave them a new weapon. We'll be speaking to her later in the episode, but I think Dr. Lucia Williams summed up this switch very concisely in her essay, Reading Lolita to Understand Child Abuse. She says this, quote, Nabokov was intuitively right even in his antipathy for Sigmund Freud, who could have advanced knowledge on the impact of child sexual abuse in human development and did not. Freud came back from Paris shocked with the maltreated children he saw examined by child abuse pioneer Ambrosia Tardieu, a French pathologist and expert in forensic medicine. In his Assault on Truth, Jeffrey M. Masson describes how Freud was forced by Viennese society to abandon his proposed seduction theory, in which hysteria occurred as a result of premature sexual experiences— as no one could believe that so many respectable gentlemen could indeed sexually abuse their own daughters. As a result, Freud abandoned his theory and started defending that the patient's report was a mere fabrication based on underlying repressed sexual urges, unquote. And in spite of the fact that his opinions did change over time, Freud remained pretty resistant to criticism from, guess, it's women. Psychoanalyst Karen Horney came for the concept of penis envy, countering it with the idea that perhaps men have womb envy for being unable to bear children. Freud replies with this. We shall not be very greatly surprised if a woman analyst who has not been sufficiently convinced of the intensity of her own wish for a penis also fails to attach proper importance to that factor in her patience. I hope it will not surprise you to hear there is a lot of criticism and pushback on Freud's work in the area of child psychology and as it pertains to women, whether he liked it or not. One of the more comprehensive arguments was made by social worker Florence Rush in the 1970s, long after Freud had died, called the Freudian cover-up. So, as it pertains to Dolores Hayes, once you have the context of Freud's history of not sharing research approaches, potentially forcing and projecting false memories on patients, as well as the whole hysteria and rigid gender and patriarchal anxiety narratives he was so passionate about, it's hard to take this work for gospel. A quick word on Kinsey's research on child sexuality here as well. While he's remembered now as a then-controversial, now somewhat accepted sexologist who was played by Liam Neeson in a so-so movie in the early 2000s, there are some things worth mentioning about Alfred Kinsey as well. We see a lot of flat-out unethical tactics in publishing information about child abuse. 
Another content warning here, and I am pulling from a 2004 New York Times piece by Caleb Crane examining Kinsey's legacy around the time of the biopic release. In 1948's Sexual Behavior of the Human Male, Kinsey claims to have spoken with nine adult male child sex abusers about their experiences. His intent, as it was framed then and is now, is presenting this as strictly scientific data. Over 40 years later, following Kinsey's death, an independent researcher named Judith Reisman revisited Kinsey's original work and found that all the experiences included in his publication came from one person, not nine. Which proves very little about the nature of child sex abusers beyond this one specific person, who Kinsey had actively encouraged in correspondence to continue sending account, and has been interpreted by Reisman and other critics as greatly exploitative and as false data. And so at this point in my research, my brain is just leaking out of my ears, because how could these studies conducted in these unethical ways by professionals like Freud and Kinsey with these massive holes in their approaches and failing to verify really much of anything of what they're claiming is true continue to shape the way children are taught to view their own sexuality? And that's a rhetorical question. We know that this happens. Why did Lolita become a story about a child inviting their own abuse according to the society presenting it? Because that is what our culture does. And this is Nabokov's problem with Freud, honing in particularly on his and Kinsey's research practices as reason enough to discredit their entire body of work. He criticizes them in part through the overblown narrative style of Lolita's fictional prologue by John Ray Jr., saying this of him later. After doing my impersonation of suave John Ray, the character in Lolita who pins the foreword, any comments coming straight from me may strike one, may strike me, in fact, as an impersonation of Vladimir Nabokov talking about his own book. A few points, however, have to be discussed, and the autobiographic device may induce mimic and model to blend. Teachers of literature are apt to think up such problems as, what is the author's purpose? Or still worse, what is the guy trying to say? Okay, he's attacking me. But he does go on to say this. I am neither a reader nor writer of didactic fiction, and despite John Ray's assertion, Lolita has no moral in tow. And Humbert Humbert, in the 1947 the book takes place in, is well aware of the theories of the day and spewed them out to professionals to give a false positive, playing it to his advantage and wasting the mental health professional's time. Note passages like this in the book. I discovered there was an endless source of robust enjoyment in trifling with psychiatrists, cunningly leading them on, never letting them see that you know all the tricks of the trade, inventing for them elaborate dreams, and never allowing them the slightest glimpse of one's real sexual predicament. And while taking advantage of the leeway that Freud's work inherently provides him, he also comes to the table with a dismissal of psychology of the day that's not dissimilar to Nabokov. Again, Humbert is never to be trusted here, and I don't even agree with this blanket statement on mental health. But in regards to the specific type of prescriptive pop psychology of this era, Freud and Kinsey were absolutely Nabokov's targets. You can also reference this moment where Humbert talks about his stays at sanatoriums prior to meeting Dolores Hayes. The child therapist in me, a fake, as most of them are, but no matter, regurgitated neo-Freudian hash and conjured up a dreaming and exaggerated dolly in the latency period of girlhood. 
And there are a lot of references and jokes made at Freud's expense in the adaptations as well. He's referenced at least once in every adaptation, and the Peter Sellers Quilty does a full-on Freud impression in the 1962 Kubrick adaptation. Here's Nabokov in on a book entitled Lolita. Although everybody should know that I detest symbols and allegories, which is due partly to my old feud with Freudian voodooism and partly to my loathing of generalizations devised by literary mythists and sociologists, an otherwise intelligent reader who flipped through the first part described Lolita as Old Europe debauching young America, while another flipper saw in it Young America debauching Old Europe. I first read Nabokov's skepticism towards psychology of his day to be potentially harmful, because after all, as it exists at present, that may have been able to help Dolores Hayes and survivors like her. But in the context of pop psychology of his day, this aversion makes a lot more sense to me, because after all, Dr. Freud's opinions about women, children, and sexuality would have posed a fairly large threat to Dolores. On top of the fact that she very well may not have been believed, it's just as possible her reality could have been dismissed as a Freudian fantasy and a lust for something that in reality she was subjected to. Because he specialized in finding ways to connect real trauma to a patriarchal structure that he was personally fixated on and finding ways to make it the victim's fault. And as prominent as the criticism around Freud was at different points, the assumptions made by his work remain very potent in popular entertainment, to the point that there's cinematic tropes that are built around his work. So it's unfortunately safe to say that the dated psychoanalysis techniques likely would have worked against Dolores Hayes and Sally Horner's best interests. So where has the study of sexual abuse of children landed today? To begin answering that, I'd like to share a little bit of an interview I did with Lucia Williams, whose work in treating survivors of abuse has been greatly influential in the last few decades. She is a specialist in working with victims like Dolores, who argues that Lolita, the book, not the adaptations, is a very useful text to exist, both as a work of art and as a fairly comprehensive insight into how victims of sexual abuse as children can repress and react to trauma in real time. She is a former professor of psychology at the Universidade Federal de São Carlos in Brazil, where she coordinated La Preve, the Laboratory of Violence Analysis and Prevention. Her paper, titled Reading Lolita to Understand Child Sexual Abuse, argues that Lolita is an effectively written story that illustrates both a convincing child sexual abuser's tactics towards entrapping a child victim and a convincing victim of his abuse in the behavior we see Dolores Hayes display as she struggles to escape Humbert's control. I talked to Lucia about the common myths around abuse that Nabokov tackles or attempts to tackle and her experience in the field. Here's our interview. I once got a, a Cambridge fellowship and, and I could do whatever I wanted. I said, I'm just going to work on Lolita. So, and then I used that uh, analysis that I did to teach uh, psych students an intro on psych abuse, uh, psychological abuse and, and, and sexual abuse. Because when I asked my students who read Lolita, maybe one person out of a whole class would have read it, which is, for me, a tradition, what a classic is, right? Everybody has heard about it, but nobody, hardly anybody has read it. But when, the, when people read it, 
sometimes they didn't make the connection that that was such an important book. From your standpoint, um, mm-hmm. what does he get right about, um, I guess we'll start with what does he get right about the character of Dolores? Dolores, first of all, her name, right? Her name means pain in Spanish. So he, for anybody who thinks that he's defending, he is making an apology. He starts with a very painful name, which is, you know, an important metaphor. But what he gets it right, she is a 12-year-old kid. And Hollywood and other, um, you know, media, they, 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 you know, there's this, I don't know how to describe it, but there is this movement that Lolita was a, a very forward teenager and very... Uh, mature sexually you know and, and very a seductress type type of person and she was just a kid she was a 12 year old kid it's so complex isn't it because you know uh, when you little kids when they're growing up in general they think that sex is gross you know and that's they're not ready they're not mature enough to understand and to enjoy it of course they're very curious and we're sexualized being from the minute we're born. But it takes, it goes slowly, you know, it takes a while. And that's why it's so wrong, because it's a break. It's a disruption in power. An adult is a mature, sexually mature person. And this little kid is not ready for all this massive information that's coming along, and it comes along with guilt, with depression, with fear. He does a very good job describing uh, a possible man with uh, pedophilia, which is a very, very serious uh, type of mental illness. Mm-hmm. But anyways, for example, he disconstructs the myth that it's always a disgusting person. You know, somebody you would see in a dark alley and you would be scared. Most of these guys are, you know, they could be anybody. So Humbert is somebody who is very uh, smart, well, be I guess, polite to people in general. He's very um, eloquent. He's fun to talk to. He's humorous, right? So that's an important point because, you know, he breaks the stereotype. You know, don't look for somebody. He's not going to be necessarily somebody that you're going to be afraid with. And then why why do um like going off that why is it so often confused as a love story? Because I think that people don't understand about child sexual abuse mm-hmm. enough. For example, they think that it's rare. They think that it hardly ever happens, and it's very 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 common, mm-hmm. right? Of course, there's different degrees. You know, it could be something very mild. It could be something that was very intense and lasted for years, like in her case. Mm-hmm. So, and they don't understand the complexity, the dynamics, how hard it is for the child to speak, you mm-hmm. know, how hard it is for the judicial system to deal with a crime like that, that you have the witness who is a, a, a little child mm-hmm. and, uh, and you have an adult who is very powerful. I closed out our talk by speaking with Lucia briefly on what she feels needs to be done to prevent abuse of this nature, and her answer was both simple and complicated. 
talk about it. She says this. There's so much to be done. I mean, you know, um, working, for example, with professionals, if that's a great way to do prevention, right? working with judges, working with lawyers. So you need to, to, to work, you know, and then with society in general. And also we have to demystify it and tell parents that, you know, they've got to talk about, to, to, about that with their kids. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's difficult because parents are scared. Thank you so much to Lucia Williams for her time and insights. And these views are echoed by another writer, Sakna Fall, in her paper From Humbert and Lolita, The Other as Prey. And for the record, this paper was written in French and I used Google Translate. So if there's any clunky wording, blame me and Google. Too many readers, or rather non-readers, continue to make Humbert the prey of Lolita, exactly like too many parents and police professionals, magistrates, shrinks, alas, even social workers want to believe that it is the complainant with her t-shirt and her tanned forms who make the adult her prey. Unlike the fallacious pleadings of the sexual assailants, Humbert's self-centered discourse succeeds in establishing itself as the discourse of reality. Alita is no longer listened to for what she says, quote, disgusting things, nor understood for what she experiences, and a quote, and Lowe's sobs at night, every night, as soon as I pretend to be asleep. Nor is she seen for what she is, a teenage girl deprived of love, but once again as an object prey, of speech this time, and never as a subject. Lucia Williams references Fall's work and her own essay. And a lot of what Lucia and I talked about is connected to what Nabokov gets right in his text, but she's just as adamant about acknowledging the common misreadings of the book and the potential harm that that can wield. Here's what she had to say about it. One of the issues that perhaps people get confused, and I've seen very young modern writers talking about this, saying, oh, She's the one who seduced him. She wasn't even a virgin. And it's true. One of the reasons that Lolita the book remains such a controversial text is because of how it's been weaponized by those doing bad faith readings of it and perpetuating those bad reads in order to harm others, particularly young girls and women, as this horrible cycle tends to go. I got an email from a listener whose identity will, of course, be protected here. And what they describe about their experience with the text of Lolita is, unfortunately, not uncommon. It involves a teacher who claims to be teaching Nabokov's text, who not only frames it as a love story, but leverages this misinterpretation to groom a young or underage student. Done by an instructor whose career and life were unaffected by doing this, deeply scarred the listener who contacted me. And understandably, even a mention of the text is a huge trigger for them. And of course it is. A lot of feedback I've gotten in regards to stories like this is that if Nabokov's work can be so easily twisted to harm the young girls and women that it appears he was trying to draw attention to, is it worth examining still? There's no one answer to this. The conversation is still going. Again, a lot of readers avoid Lolita altogether due to their own experiences with sexual abuse. That is extremely valid. You don't need me to tell you that, but I will reinforce it. And I'm in no way condoning giving this book to children. 
I don't think Lolita by Nabokov should be. But in a world where children don't always have these conversations and not doing so has demonstrable harm, Lolita has assumed a role for better and for worse. I'm going to be sharing two interviews with you now. Both, unfortunately, involve the concept of grooming, so I want to define what that is clearly. Trigger warning being placed here again for abuse with grooming in particular. According to the National Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, grooming is defined as such. Quote, Grooming is when someone builds a relationship, trust, and emotional connection with a child or young person so they can manipulate, exploit, and abuse them, unquote. They expand on this definition, saying, quote, Children and young people can be groomed online or in the real world by a stranger or by someone they know. This can mean a family member, an adult in a child's community, or a teacher. And it's not extremely surprising that bad faith actors who are intentionally reading Humbert's account to validate their own abuse of children have often used Lolita to intentionally victimize children. First, an account that involves grooming where Lolita was framed so disingenuously that the subject of that abuse didn't want to engage with the book at all for some time. I mean, who would? My first talk is with the writer of one of the most insightful, personal, and difficult reads that tackles this topic. Her name is Allison Wood, and her memoir, Being Lolita, came out in 2020. It's an account that reflects this listener's email and the accounts of others. A high school teacher used the romanticized Humbert in a way that is unchallenging of how deceitful and criminal he is in order to groom her into a relationship, among other predatory writers like Lewis Carroll. Alison Wood's memoir tracks this relationship and how Lolita factored into it, and she was kind enough to take the time to speak with me about her memoir and what this means for Lolita. Here's some of our interview. I was introduced to Lolita when I was 17 years old. I was a senior in high school, and an English teacher in my high school who was supposed to be mentoring me and giving me extra support in my writing my creative writing teacher thought that I was talented, um, so she asked another teacher to meet with me after school and just sort of give me some extra attention. So he gave me a copy of Lolita. Mm -hmm. He told me it was a beautiful story about love. And by then, our after-school mentoring had already begun escalating into something far more nefarious and complicated and uh, not appropriate. By the time he gave me Lolita, we were already meeting secretly at night in a diner in, in the next town over. And Lo the book Lolita was part of that. He told me that it was a story about our love, this sort of star-crossed lovers, younger girl, older man, that it was just the height of romance. Mm -hmm. And I was 17 and didn't know any better. So I believed him. My teacher wasn't the only one who argues that Lolita is a story about love. I mean, one of the original, one of the original uh, reviews of the book from Vanity Fair mm -hmm. called it the only convincing love story of our century. Mm -hmm. Like what? I'm sorry, <laughs> Lolita? 
my understanding of Lolita began to shift as I got older. Mm-hmm. And basically, as I began to learn about things outside of the teacher's purview. And when I went to college and left him, that was when I began to understand Lolita on my own terms. So I went to class expecting that I knew exactly how this conversation, how this lecture would go. Mm-hmm. And then my teacher started talking about the book uh, uh, by writing on the chalkboard, Who's Seducing Who? and talked about Lolita as this book about obsession and rape and kidnapping and murder. Mm. And she gave this uh, example as a way to talk about Lolita and her, or sorry, she always called her Dolores Hayes. Her actual name is Dolores Hayes. Her her name is not Lolita. That's how Humbert views her. Mm -hmm. And that's how Humbert shapes her in the book, but her actual name is Dolores. And my professor made a point to always call her Dolores because basically as a culture, we have taken on Humbert's point of view Mm -hmm. of Dolores by calling, by thinking of her as Lolita and then Lolita in this iconography way Mm -hmm. of the seductress, the Jezebel, the dangerous young girl. And none of that is true. Right. None of that is true. She was a victim mm-hmm. and she was a teenage girl. I feel like in the literary world, there's this really like strong divide between Lolita is bad, Lolita is good, like, and never the twain shall meet, you know. Um, and there, Nabokov has a lot, lot of defenders. Mm-hmm. Um, people make excuses, people talk about how he's a genius. There are entire graduate level seminars dedicated to him. I mean, in particular, straight white guys, I think, are very into Nabokov, which is fine. I take a more complicated look, I think, at Lolita. And this is not just from a personal standpoint. I think the book's too long. So when I teach Lolita, and this is all to say, I do not think that Lolita should not be read or taught. I absolutely believe that even bad books, and I'm using bad as in like not badly written, but you know, like complicated, problematic books should still be read, but they need to be read with a context, right? You cannot just read these books in this vacuum of genius. Like, no, no, we we don't do that anymore. (laughs) (laughs) We don't do that anymore. I, I reject the... Uh, the overwhelming nature of the white Western male canon. Mm -hmm. I think that's a bunch of bullshit. Mm -hmm. And I think all work should be criticized. And I think that's fair. And I think it's long past time for us to be having discussions about books like these where women are objectified and sexualized. And Lolita is not really a person in this book. She is, Dolores is not a person. There is only Lolita. But so we read Lolita at the end of my course. And in my course, whenever I teach creative writing, we almost exclusively read women and non-binary folks and women of color and queer women. And mm-hmm. that, that's the canon that I create for us. Mm-hmm. So by the time we read Lolita, which is the last thing that we read, my students ha- all have a really strong understanding of how 
a perspective, a book like this is different, mm-hmm. right? Because with like, if I was teaching Lolita, if Lolita was one of the first things that I taught, I have no idea. I mean, I have, uh, I have, uh, I'm certain if Lolita was the first book that I taught, I'm certain that there would be a lot of defenders and a lot of my students would not fully understand Mm -hmm. what is happening on the page and how the prose is manipulating the reader. I would not be confident that my students would have the ability to critique, to see through the language, to understand. But by the end of my course, they do. Like that's what the three months have been about. How do you meet a piece of art and have the tools to ask questions about it and to engage with it? Lolita is a cultural myth. Lolita is a touchstone. Lolita means things. And sure, okay, I I think the book does deserve to be you know, understood and treated with respect as a piece of art. Mm-hmm. But to think that these other things don't matter, like what kind of privilege is that? Yeah. Because also, I mean, uh, let's be real, like the white, the white man is the hero of Lolita. Thank you again to Alison Wood and definitely check out her memoir, Being Lolita, for more. I love her approach to teaching Lolita. It's a challenging and modern approach that doesn't just address Humbert's narrative unreliability very concisely, but centers Dolores and has a lot to teach us about how biased narratives are written and developing reading skills that are very conscious of this. Hey guys, it's Rich Davis from Cavino and Rich here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance or any terrain from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew could stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you could sit back and enjoy the wide open views with the whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter what your style, you could drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. 
To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Bindu Bonsanath is another writer who was introduced to Lolita through grooming, but had a different experience in using Dolores as a guide to navigate through trauma. She wrote beautifully about this time in her life, which was originally during high school, in a New York Times modern love column back in 2018. She was given a copy of Lolita by her uncle, a close family friend, not biological, who encouraged her to not tell her parents that he'd done so. She writes this. I wanted to read Lolita because I believed it would mitigate my sexual shame. The similarity between the novel's plot and my day-to-day life had sent me on a Google search, where I read excerpts and watched trailers of both film adaptations, categorized under crime, drama, and romance. Until then, it had never occurred to me to consider my relationship with my uncle under any of those genres. That anyone could think us a romance nauseated me, while crime and drama seemed overblown. The behavior of Bonsinath's uncle often reflects Humbert's exactly, becoming a confidant and alternative to her conservative parents, buying her presents, conditioning her to believe that keeping a secret should be empowering to her, not limiting or scary. She continues, Under the false pretense of his wife joining us, he turned our day trips into overnights. On weekends, he drove us into Manhattan, delivering me to acting classes and then picking me up for dinners and Broadway plays. Understanding she was being abused but afraid she would ruin her uncle's life by saying so, she turned back to the text of Lolita to take cues from Dolores Hayes. I came to see how Lolita uses Humbert's obsession with her as a means to gain power over him. In the blue kidnapping car in which the two travel cross-country, she uses his power to accuse him of rape, of being a dirty man. While Humbert fumbles to justify booking one hotel room for both of them, she names their situation for the incest it is. She knows she is Humbert's vulnerability and learns how to use herself against him. Later, she says this. When he surprised me with an apartment he had rented for us near my school, I told him for the first time that I hated him, that he was as much a pervert as the man in the book. And once the accusations began, I could not stop. Although he had helped to finance my school fees, I also demanded envelopes of money determined to be ungrateful to exact collateral. Over dinners, I told him about men I had been with and what we had done, at which point he would set aside his plate and moan that he had lost his appetite. Bonsanath told a teacher about the abuse before graduating high school and then the police. Through Dolores' actions, she was able to take steps Dolores did towards her liberation from an abuser and got out. Today, she's a professional writer with a master's degree whose modern love piece is being republished in Lolita in the Afterlife in 2021. She is awesome. And I got to catch up with her a couple weeks ago. I think you're all, I was always kind of searching for her in the text. She's so much occluded by everything that Humbert Humbert is saying. I mean, she really, it really is his narrative and Mm -hmm. you know, even the moments that you feel, or I feel, um, that she peeks through, um, unfiltered you know moments of dialogue or this is like nerdy but in chapter 32 where he's kind of thinking about you know thing details about her that he's omitted that kind of um things that make him feel guilty or um really highlight her how he doesn't really know who she is as an individual or her thought process or the fact that she is feeling like deep pain over everything wading through all of his language about her 
I just thought that she was, you know, bold and, and brave and, um, you know, she kind of ch- challenged him in a kind of snarky way. And, and you know, I don't know, her fate is like very sad in the story, but uh, she's so opaque in ways that I think um, when when she does come through, I really like latched onto it. And um, I, I know I wrote about this in the piece, but, you know, even moments where, you know, he's gaslighting her or, you know, doing classic grooming tactics. So she kind of sees through all like, you know, booking one bedroom for the two of them. And, and also knowing that, you know, whatever happened with her mother, you know, feel it's like he had a dirty hand in it as well. Like she can see all of that. And I think that comes through. Between the second time when you were returning to it, um, was there anything that kind of struck you very differently or what was uh, what was it like returning to that text? I think what was different is even the frame, uh, the framework of how I arrived at it. I think when I was um, when I first read it and it was funny because even in this college class, we all kind of talked about everyone had read this book before as a teenager or mm. an adolescent and had like a very weird whatever brought them to it was weird and I think has to do a lot with the ways that this is twisted in popular culture I kind of bought the the like quotes around it you know what's that really popular one like greatest love story or whatever um and and this and that so I think by the time I was coming to it again Mm. um I was must well much it was a totally different framework it was about like reading books about about rape. And um, so I kind of was, you know, not drawn in by that. Um, I don't know, like the, the love, weird love aspect of it. I think it would be useful to before reading it, kind of read the conversation around it and how that conversation has been distorted and, um, you know, really, you know, kind of gross at times and, and over sexualizing this trope of a precocious girl I feel like you know reading all of that I would if I was teaching it I would do that first um and then because I think it kind of makes it even more appalling then like when you read about how it's been um celebrated in really weird ways and unsettling ways and then to then go to into the text knowing knowing how it's been distorted then you're like looking at it and you're seeing it for what it truly is oh i maybe just wanted to add something that i was thinking about since you brought it up earlier but um talking about how a lot of women have the experience of reading this twice reading it once as a as a young person who identifies with this character in an immediate sense you Mm -hmm. know either they're still going through the abuse or they're just like her age Mm -hmm. um versus reading it when you're a little bit older and i think one of the weird things, I mean, one of the things, I mean, the process of grooming does this to you, like it adultifies you. And it's interesting how when you read it, like when I read it as um, as a teenager, um, I just thought of myself as so adult. And mm-hmm. in that weird way, I kind of thought of her as older as well, because that's I just didn't really see myself as a child. And the book is also asking you not to see her as a child. And then when you're older... Um, it's, it's so, I think that's like a really weird thing to confront that you had had once seen it that way. And you kind of have to, you know, have sympathy for yourself at a younger age as well. And, you know, look at yourself as a girl. And I think that you're looking at her as a girl because that's what she is. Bonsanath has an essay included in the upcoming anthology, Lolita in the Afterlife, 
on beauty, risk, and reckoning with the most indelible and shocking novel of the 20th century, which comes out in 2021. Thank you so much, Bindu. The final example I'm going to pull from here is one we talked about in episode one of Lolita podcast, Azar Nafisi's Reading Lolita in Tehran. As a reminder, this is a memoir of a professor who began a secret reading group with a group of female Iranian students in the 1990s. Nafisi and her group analyzed Western literature through the lens of students who haven't known anything but the oppressive gender roles of revolutionary Iran, and the women in the group empathize with Dolores considerably, talking through the manipulative tactics that Humbert Humbert takes both with Nafisi and with each other, and are troubled and touched by Dolores's inability to live as a quote-unquote normal girl. Nafisi has this to say. Lolita belongs to a category of victims who have no defense and are never given a chance to articulate their own story. As such, she becomes a double victim. Not only her life, but also her life's story is taken from her. We told ourselves that we were in that class to prevent ourselves from falling victim to this second crime. The women in the reading group had what first-time readers like Alison Wood and Bindu Bansanath did not, each other, and being slightly older, in a framing of the work that did not have a vested interest in selling Humbert Humbert as a romantic hero. There are a lot of fascinating parts of Nafisi's memoir, but what really shines through about Lolita is the difference it makes when a young reader is encouraged to empathize with Dolores from the book's first page, to prioritize finding her in the novel instead of taking her abuser's word at face value. In my talking to psychology professionals for this show, one thing that really shines through in particular is the need for our culture to find a way to have a meaningful discussion on the subject of child abuse and to educate both children and adults on communicating with each other and being vigilant to children around them who may be at risk for abuse. I am not claiming that this field is perfect, but it has come a long way. So to close this episode, I want to share some of my interview with Dr. Michael Lamb. He's a pioneer in the field of child psychology and was the head of the Section on Social and Emotional Development of the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development in Washington, D.C. for 17 years. He was also an expert witness when Prop 8 challenged same-sex marriage in California and effectively argued that a child did not need heterosexual parents in order to grow up happy and well cared for. He also developed the NICHD Protocol, which is grounded in research on the cognitive and communicative elements of children's development, as well as developing techniques that allow children to provide accurate information about their experiences, very often about sexual abuse. Here's some of our interview. Well, the, the major problems which came to the fore in a spate of multi-victim cases in the 1980s mm -hmm. um, uh, were cases where very young children mm -hmm. were believed to have been abused uh, and were intensively and repeatedly and it turns out highly suggestively interviewed by those investigating it. And the, the justifications for doing that w were varied, but but for many they included the idea that that their little children really couldn't adequately describe their experiences. 
or they were predicated on assumptions that uh, many children were too afraid to talk um, uh, or were uh, trying to protect themselves and others by not talking. Mm -hmm. And again, that the solution was to uh, make suggestive comments to them and encourage them to verify or acquiesce to those kinds of, of allegations. In these cases, guilty verdicts were uh, delivered and then those verdicts were overthrown on appeal as it became clear that, that really we weren't listening to the child's words, we were simply listening to the words of these in most cases, well-meaning, but perhaps overzealous uh, advocates. But what we've tried to do is to first knock back a lot of the assumptions about how incompetent children are, because in fact, actually kids are quite capable of describing their experiences from a relatively young age. We want to turn that dynamic around. We, we want the adult's role to be primarily that of the person who is providing the scaffold or the context in which the child can actually talk about his or her experiences. We need to get them to understand that this is a situation where the adult doesn't know what the right answer is, and that they're the expert. So it involves a little bit of just changing, changing the dynamics you know, understanding that from the perspective of the child, this is a kind of unusual situation. What I think was the prevailing notion, which was that sexual abuse was a very rare phenomenon, that it, it didn't happen very often. And, and when it did, it was mostly thought of in, in terms of incest within family dynamics and was seen as as a um, really remarkable behavior that came from highly pathological uh, motivations and, and sources. And I think those sorts of beliefs really hindered our recognition of what must have been the reality, that there was actually much more sexual abuse taking place than anybody wanted to to recognize and to some extent i think you know th that was part of the problem with the reception of lolita because it describes a situation where you have what would otherwise be very obvious sexual abuse and in a an otherwise normal sort of context if i can use that that word. You know, there's often this reference to the seductive behavior of, of, of Lolita. Right. Um, uh, and that loses the, the whole point. It is sexual abuse. You know, whatever, whatever way you try to cast her behavior, she is not responsible for what happens. Right. But I think for, for, Children, you know, prepubescent children, but also, um, you know, early adolescents, mm -hmm. there's a, a big concern about issues of, of am I partly responsible? Did I do something? Which I have to say is also a, 
you know, a huge part of uh, the issue when prosecuting rape cases, mm-hmm. because there is often the inference made or the suggestion that the victim in, in some way bears some of the responsibility. And in many cases of abuse, um, particularly when you have sort of long-term abuse by somebody who has taken the time to to groom a victim, mm-hmm. that may indeed be part of the message that the, the groomer is conveying. You know, this is our special secret. Um, we need to keep it, it secret. Um, uh, and I think that that's something that, that um, uh, is played quite well in the book and is, is very relevant to what I think we often see. A lot of what, I, what I'm tackling here has to do with the book uh, and how the book clearly outlines this really horrible detailed account that's narrated by an abuser. And then the cultural takeaway, which I think is, you know, tends to frame Lolita as the seductress. What do you make of, I guess, that kind of cultural trend? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the the ultimate irony that that, again, it's the, the victim blaming and that it's the the child in this piece who has been, you know, regardless of whatever she did or felt morally and legally she's a victim Um, uh, she's a victim of this older man and and that's where the responsibility should lie and it it does bother me um, uh, a great deal that the perception would be one that in a sense, attributes responsibility, some or all, to her for the fact that she was a victim. In so many ways, you know, sexual abuse is still with us. Um, uh, we're now so much more aware of it. I think that the popular views, though, are still quite uh, distorted. There are lots of myths, but one of the prevailing myths is the notion that, you know, most sexual abuse is um, uh, performed by strangers, you know. And so there's all of these programs that encourage kids, you know, not to get into a car with strangers and Mm -hmm. not to go off with people and so on, which are good good advice, um, uh, but they miss the point that most sexual abuse is performed by people familiar to the child. Thank you so much to Michael. Another area of prevention, of course, is prevention regarding offenders. This podcast is focused on the reclaiming of Dolores Hayes, not the analysis of Humbert Humbert. I think he's gotten quite enough airtime over the years. But in speaking with Lucia and Michael particularly, the need for preventative treatment is necessary on the end of potential offenders as well. So I'll place another trigger warning here for the discussion of people who are attracted to minors, as well as child sexual abuse. This was an area that was extremely triggering for me as well, and I've been struggling on how to address this responsibly within this show. So full disclosure, when the first episode of Lolita podcast came out, 
I got several emails from MAPs. That is short, I learned, for minor attracted people. The people who reached out were non-offending MAPs or law-abiding MAPs, as one put it. They were careful to specify in these emails that acknowledging oneself as a minor attracted person does not necessitate being an offender. Not that that makes it any less uncomfortable or triggering. I was honestly very taken aback and extremely anxious when this happened. This is an area where I struggle to even attempt empathy and gut instinct I was tempted to ignore the emails altogether. But after thinking on it for a couple days, What Lucia said in particular in our conversation stuck with me, where she said essentially that not confronting an issue because it makes you uncomfortable doesn't do anything to help anybody. The sexual abuse of a minor is a very common crime, and that means that there are a lot of people out there who are committing that crime, and yet the conversation about how these crimes could have been prevented is still a very silent and taboo discussion. I have learned in the past two weeks that there is a distinction between the term pedophile, another way of saying MAP, and the term child sexual abuser. I touched base with Lucia, Dr. Williams, to ask for some clarity on how to best approach making this distinction in the show. She can explain far better than I can on this topic, so I'm going to quote her with permission from an email she sent me this past week. She says, quote, It's important to stress that pedophilia is a type of mental illness and not a crime, as usually there is plenty of confusion. The crime is child sexual abuse. To complicate things, this crime can also be committed by people who do not have pedophilia. This could be due to a series of factors, including previous abuse history, sexual difficulties, loneliness, etc. In other words, if you are not exclusively attracted by children, you don't have pedophilia. A lot of fake news mentions pedophilia inappropriately. We talked about pedophilia because that was Humbert Humbert's case, but people without pedophilia may abuse children." So I and the conversation around Humbert Humbert for years have been using the word pedophile to equate it with criminality. And I've used the word pedophile in the past as an all-encompassing qualifier for a person who has sexually abused a minor. Now, given that Humbert is not a real person any more than I'm a real psychologist, I couldn't say exactly where he falls here, except that Dr. Williams seems to believe that he is both a pedophile and a child sex abuser, and Nabokov makes it clear that Humbert should be receiving mental health treatment for this reason, but is not willing to do so in good faith. And I know that there may be people who are upset with me uh, for trying to speak about this, but when MAPs reached out to me, that presented a a just kind of a quandary that needed a lot of consideration on my part. And so I took a little bit of time and I talked to a number of people whose opinions I trust, several of whom who have experienced CSA, which is short for child sexual abuse themselves. And this is the decision that I came to. And in making that call, something that particularly moved me was this anonymous account of someone I know, who is a CSA survivor, who has very strong feelings on this topic. And I'm going to be reading this for them. Quote, As a survivor, I have an abundance of resources, books, and support groups at my disposal, but the damage has already been done. 
Making sense of the sexual abuse I endured for the duration of my adolescence, beginning when I was 12 years old, has been and continues to be one of the greatest obstacles of my life. I was 28 before I could even bring myself to say the words to a therapist. The particular challenge I face is the man who abused me as a family member who remains very much in my life, which unfortunately is far from unique. According to Rain, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, over 93% of CSA perpetrators are known to their victim. The culture of silence and shame around childhood sexual abuse both belies its pervasiveness and perpetuates it. More recently, the rise of the conspiracy theory group QAnon signifies to me that it is easier for some people to stomach the fictitious notion that CSA perpetrators are confined to a powerful, evil superstructure far away from them, rather than fathers, uncles, brothers, cousins, and sometimes mothers, people they pass in the aisles of the grocery store every day, which is overwhelmingly the reality. Much has been said about stopping the cycle of childhood sexual abuse, but that phrase is usually targeted towards adjusting the behavior of a survivor rather than a potential abuser. The clearest articulation of my feeling on this matter comes from writer, activist, and fellow CSA survivor Tashmika Torak in her essay, Casting Aspersions, where she writes, quote, It is time to consider where interventions might take place for those who might harm children. Teens who do not have an understanding of bodily autonomy and consent will not respect the bodies of others. There is not national movement to make services available for people who have caused harm or who are contemplating sexual violence towards children. There are not enough publicly accessible accountability support groups or cognitive behavioral therapy groups in service of changing the behavior of perpetrators of sexual violence. Why do we always lay the burden of ending sexual violence at the feet of those who have survived it? And that ends Tashmika Turok's quote, continuing the anonymous survivor. The ubiquity of childhood sexual abuse and its lifelong implications for victims demands that we dismantle the reticence and denial that surrounds addressing abusers and would-be perpetrators outside of the carceral system that we make a concerted effort to pull the problem from its root. We owe survivors that much." Unquote. And I want to thank them so much again for sharing that with me um, and with you for this show. The MAPs who contacted me directed me to some of the few anonymous resources available to MAPs who either feel they are at risk for offending or are, are seeking a therapist that they can speak with openly. And in preparing for this episode and for this segment, I spoke with a few of the nonprofits whose priorities are connecting MAPs with the therapy and the treatment that they need, as well as peer support and connecting researchers with subjects so that this field of study can continue. I'm not going to get into the details of that treatment here because I'm here for Dolores. But I think that part of showing up for Dolores is mentioning that these organizations and these options exist and that their intent is to reduce harm. And I know that based on the past several weeks that many MAPs have already heard this show. And so if you are an MAP who has not started treatment yet, please go to beforeyouact.org 
That's letter B, numeral four, letter U, A C T dot org to connect with professionals and access resources. Please, thank you. And if you are a victim of sexual violence of any kind who is seeking help or more resources, please go to rain.org. That's R A I N N dot org. And for those interested, there's also an excellent guide on how to approach discussions with survivors of sexual abuse from Rain that a listener sent my way that I will have linked in the show notes. And I want to bring things back to Sally Horner one last time, to a passage from Sarah Weinman in The Real Lolita, describing the moment that Sally Horner was finally returned to her mother after being abducted for 21 months. Quote, from the plane, Sally spotted her brother-in-law in the crowd. Sally wanted to get out right away, but Cohen told her to wait for the other passengers to leave first. I want to see Mama, she cried. She and her mother clung to each other for several minutes, oblivious to the myriad flashbulbs popping at them. At first, they were weeping too hard to speak. Then Sally said, I want to go home. I just want to go home. And there is so much more to be said about this conversation, but I hope this episode has been successful in getting it started. We need to find a way to have this conversation. Not doing so ties back into how Lolita was able to gather such momentum blaming its titular character for her own abuse uninterrupted for decades, and why so many accounts reflect the dynamics we see with Dolores and Humbert. I highly recommend reading into the work of everyone I spoke with in this episode, and I'm going to be including a bibliography in the notes of this episode. But if you thought we were done with Lolita, honey, we are only halfway there. Next week, a little bit of bizarre levity. We're taking a look at not one, but two failed Broadway adaptations of Lolita, neither of which ever made it to opening night. One's a musical by the man who wrote My Fair Lady and the man who wrote the music for James Bond, seriously, and the other is a gritty rewrite by Edward Albee of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf fame, seriously. They may never have debuted, but that didn't stop me from getting my hands on them or talking to the women who played Lolita. Next week on Lolita Podcast. This has been a production of iHeartRadio. My name is Jamie Loftus. I write and host the show. My producers are the wonderful Sophie Lichterman, Miles Gray, Beth Ann Macaluso, and Jack O'Brien. My editor is the amazing Isaac Taylor. Additional research and transcription from Ben Loftus. Music is by Zoe Blade. Theme is by Brad Dickert. I wanted to also thank my guest voices on this episode, Aziz Vora as Humbert Humbert, Robert Evans as Vladimir Nabokov, Joelle Smith, Anna Hosnier, Pallavi Gunalan, and Aristotle Acevedo as Sigmund Freud. We'll see you next week. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. 
Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.